Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. That leads us to John chapter 3. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Let's read down through now this chapter. John 3. It tells us, in light of, this is really interesting, he knows what's in man. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, there was a man of the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this, again, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, no, bro, what do you, no, he didn't say that. But he said, like, pretty much, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, through, that, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Verse 22 is where we'll close. After these things, Jesus and his disciples, they came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So this is the word of God for the people of God. To that we say, thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, We declare it every single Sunday morning. This is your word, a gift to us. And And what a great window into who you are, Jesus, showing us what you know about us. 
you know us, God. You, you know man. You know the creation of your hand. You know humanity better than we do. You, you know us, God, better than we know ourselves. And we see that displayed here in what you came to do. The good news of what you came to accomplish. So this morning, God, we, we surrender and we lay at your feet what we think we know about ourselves in order that we might be taught by you what you know about us, what you've done for us, that we might come out of the darkness and step into your light fully, that we might be saved, that we might be born again. So we invite you to have your way, Holy Spirit. Um, the kingdom of God is not just in talk, but it's in power. And so what really we ask of you today is for you to affect these things in our hearts. God, for, for people here, not just to learn about new birth and salvation, but we pray for you to bring about new birth. We pray for you to even today to bring about salvation. We just commit this time to you. We ask ultimately, Holy Spirit, would you speak through us miraculously as you do, even through a man. Would you do that? Would you speak to us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. For those of you who are wondering, you get, you get to now sit for the rest of the time, okay? So don't worry. Let your back relax there on those comfortable chairs. Uh, this morning, I um, want to preach from probably one of the longest sermon titles I've ever had uh, in my life, um, and certainly here at Solace. I just want to say, too, there, were, there are like eight other sermon titles on the cutting room floor uh, for this message, but here's what I, I landed on. If you're taking notes, which I hope you would be, um, the title of my message this morning is A Late Night Conversation with a Gospel Presentation. A Late Night Conversation with a Gospel Presentation presentation. Um, we just read what is likely one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible containing what is widely considered as the most, almost like undisputedly, the most famous scripture in all the Bible. It's likely that 100% of us in this room have heard or have googled or have seen on TV John 3.16. He's good looking, isn't he? Okay, listen, Tim Tebow, he made this probably most commonly culturally popularized through that great uh, bowl game, that championship, I think it was a national championship game where he wrote John 3.16 on his eye black. It led to, do you guys remember this, 98 million, they tracked 98 million Google searches, 98 million people Googling John 3.16, a popular verse, and for those of you that are like diehard Tebow fans, um, which is pretty much Christian women, but... Um, for those of you who are diehard Tebow fans, you know that three years later to the date, do you guys remember the great 316 game? Do you know about this? In, in Tim Tebow's book, he talks about uh, a playoff game when he was playing for the Broncos against the Steelers. They beat the Steelers, and afterwards, his PR person informed him that three years after you wrote John 316 on your eye black, you threw for 316 yards. His average of, of rush per, uh, per, per down or yards per rush was 3.16, and in 
and the viewing ratings had something to do with like 31.6. Like it's pretty crazy what happened. So John uh, 3.16 has been, uh, Tim Tebow's has definitely brought it more out into the light. But even without Tim Tebow, there, there's cultural references in the WWF with Stone Cold Steve Austin to 3.16. There are uh, also countless uh, posters that you'll see on TV. You ever been watching a football game and seen, or whatever the, the sporting event was, and there's the famous poster with John 3.16 on it. So a famous chapter, uh, but what a lot of us miss is what, this ver- what these verses and what that sp- uh, special verse, um, what it sits in, the context that it sits in. As we just read, this famous scripture and this famous chapter is couched, is couched in the context of a late-night conversation. Not a lot of people realize that, that John 3.16, it comes out of a late-night conversation. Sometimes the best conversations is that everyone's asleep, and you just can't go to sleep because you're going through something with, with someone, you're talking through something, and that's what's happening here, a late-night conversation between Jesus and a character that we meet here in the very first verse, a man by the name of Nicodemus. It tells us there in John 3.1, sets the context here, It says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. I almost called the message Nick at night, but I didn't. I didn't, okay? Um, I guess I just did. I don't know, but... We're introduced to this fascinating figure, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at the nighttime. Nicodemus, we, we just in this verse, and in scripture, um, and maybe some help from history, we learn a bit about this man. First thing we know is that Nicodemus was a wealthy man. This guy coming to Jesus at night was a wealthy individual. We see in John chapter 19, at the end of this gospel, after Jesus has been crucified, after he has breathed his last... Nicodemus is present with Joseph of of Arimathea, another wealthy man. He's present with Jesus at Jesus' burial. That's what we know about Nicodemus. And he brings with him a mixture of aloes and a hundred aloes and myrrh and a hundred Roman pounds. This is a lot of money. That's the offering of a wealthy man. Now, if history serves us correct, it's possible that Nicodemus is the brother of the great historian Flavius Josephus. His parents really did not love him very much. I shall call you Flavius. Flavius, I'm sorry if that's your name, by the way. Um, Because it's your name and because I'm saying this, both, okay. Um, Josephus, famous historian, he, he has some of the greatest external evidence to the life of Jesus, and his brother could have likely been this Nicodemus. If so, Nicodemus, Nicodemus is the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem at this time. This is a notable character. He's up there on uh, Jerusalem's Forbes list, okay? He's also an educated man. Uh, it, it tells us even just in his name, Nicodemus, it's a Greek name. That, that, that speaks of his history, his background in the Greek culture. He's a studied man. He's a learned man. He's an educated man. He is certainly a religious man. If, if there was, a, you know, this kind of thing, like if you looked up religious in the dictionary at that time, Nicodemus's face would be next to it. How religious? Well, he's one of the 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem at that time. There was a man of the Pharisees, it tells us there, named Nicodemus. Uh, The Pharisees were those, a select limited number of those in Jerusalem, that devoted themselves 
to the study and the keeping and the application of the law. It started out as a noble thing, by the way, which is it's a good thing to want to study and obey God's word. What happens often without grace and without the gospel and without the love of God, it turns into human performance mode. And what happened with the Pharisees is their good motives turned to bad religion. And they became legalists. And they created these laws of creating the scaffolding on the Bible to create laws that weren't even there. And they were putting burdens on other people, Jesus says, that they themselves weren't willing to even carry. Um, and today you still have modern Pharisees, unfortunately, in the church. You have people who know nothing of the love and the grace of God. And so all that they have to bring to the table is their performance. And all that they bring to others is judgment, unfortunately. And so uh, we do not want to be a church of Pharisees. Amen? We do not want to be a church of Pharisees. Amen? Amen. Maybe there's some Pharisees here. I don't know. Maybe we do. I hope not. Okay. No, we don't, right? We want to be Jesus people. Amen? All right. So this man, Nicodemus, we don't know exactly the nature of his, of his judgmentalism or whatnot, but we do know that we could see this man as a noble man. He's a moral man. He's a law-abiding man. Again, a religious man. And lastly, I would say this. He's not just wealthy, educated, and religious, but Nicodemus was a, was a largely influential man. This guy had an influence the first thing that we see about his influence is it tells us that he was a ruler there in the first verse of the Jews, a ruler. This is speaking to another group of people, a council of the Pharisees. You have 6,000 Pharisees, and they're kind of like the Bible guys, the religious leaders. And then within that 6,000 at that time, you had roughly 70 to 71 of the Sanhedrin, which just means seated together. You had these, this sort of religious council who was under Rome and couldn't really do anything without Rome's authority, but they were like the religious of the religious. They made it to the council. They made it to the top. Uh, not only is Nicodemus an inf influential religious leader because he's a part of that Sanhedrin, but there's something interesting and insight that we get to this man uh, from Jesus. Did you notice verse 10? There's a, a definitive article that Jesus uses to describe this man. And he doesn't say to him, you know, Nicodemus is struggling to understand the things that Jesus is saying. And Jesus says to him, aren't you, listen to this, the teacher, the teacher in Israel. He doesn't say, aren't you a teacher? Aren't you a teacher? He says, no, it's a, it's a definitive article. He says, aren't you the teacher? Aren't you the teacher of Israel? It's, it's largely held that at this time, Nicodemus is the guy. He is the top scholar. He's the top teacher. Uh, he holds, you could say, the seat of Moses in Israel for teaching. He holds the seat of Ezra. Remember, Ezra was a spiritual teacher and leader. So he has a significant seat. And this man, notice this, of great education, great wealth, great religion, and great influence, comes to see Jesus at night. Now, why does this guy, well, first of all, I just love how, despite how much you have, who you are in society, I love that there's still a need for Jesus. So this guy knows, I have all these things, but there's this man of Nazareth, there's this Jesus, and we don't know why, but Nicodemus, he has something to ask him. He has something to say. He's got to get to know this Jesus. I need to know who this man is. And so he comes by night. Again, we don't know why. We don't. doesn't tell us. We could speculate. Some reasons. Could it be, number one, that he just wanted uninterrupted time with Jesus? Jesus was a pretty busy guy. 
And maybe he knew that at night the crowds would go home and the disciples were hopefully sleeping. And so maybe I can connect with him in the nighttime. Maybe it's the nature of his religion. Um, one of the, the characteristics of being a religious, judgmental, self-righteous person is you can never show vulnerability. You have to always conceal your need. You have to always hide your weakness, your weakness right? So, so perhaps he's operating in the, the way that most religion does, which it kind of sneaks around at night when no one's looking. Like, I'm really broken, but in the light, i got to make sure everyone knows I have it all together. But now that it's nighttime, I can be the real me and go to Jesus. Another potential cause to him coming to Jesus at night is for the fear of public opinion. This is actually one of the main things that keep uh, people from being followers of Jesus in his time. There's a verse in John chapter 12 uh, that says simply that at the time in the life of Jesus, many people believed in him but they were not willing to follow him because they didn't want to be thrown out of the religious groups. Uh, In other words, when they would count the cost, they would see this, that to be accepted by God and to be a follower of Jesus means that I got to be rejected by people. And that was too big of a a bargain for a lot of people, maybe Nicodemus as well. He he doesn't want to be seen. Maybe maybe he's starting to believe in Jesus. He seems like it. Um, Still today, that is a a common reason, I think, that keep people from following Jesus. It's not that we don't know who he is. It's that it would cost us some things to follow him, right? Like maybe it would cost me my my family's approval. Maybe it would cost me the approval from fitting in being cool at work or school, whatever it may be. It costs to follow Jesus. It really does. I mean, if we're really going to follow him. Um, And so who, who knows exactly, but this gentleman, Nick, comes to Jesus at night, all right? That's what we know. And what he does is he comes with a bold statement. Notice what he says. He says, as he comes to Jesus at night, whatever the reason was, he acknowledges something to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, and this is interesting, the teacher is calling Jesus a teacher. So no matter what you know, God knows more, right? He comes under Jesus, says, Rabbi, here's the claim he makes. We know that you are a teacher that's come from God. And then he makes this statement, which I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But he says, and and he says this, that no one can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Now, this is Nicodemus saying this. We know that's not true. We we see Moses, uh, in the time of Moses, we see Pharaoh's homies work in signs. And God certainly wasn't with them. But that's the presumption that this guy is making. He's coming kind of, maybe still like trying to hold his authority together. Maybe he knows who Jesus is, but he's kind of got to showboat a little bit. He's like, teacher, rabbi. In his head he knows. He's like, oh my gosh, this may be the Messiah, right? But he's like, we, we know who you are. You come from God and you, you do these great signs. And Jesus is having none of his flattery. Jesus is not like, oh, thank yeah, thank you for affirming me. I am the Messiah. I did come from God. That's why these signs are being done. He doesn't have any of it. In fact, Jesus is in a healthy way triggered, in a good way. There's a bad, bad version of that. But he's in a healthy way triggered towards now pouring out his heart for this man. Nicodemus doesn't realize that he has just unlocked a door to the gospel just being poured out of Jesus. And that is what what the bulk of John 3 is. And it's pretty cool to see that. In my Bible, there's a lot of red letters uh, in this section. More red letters, more teaching of Jesus than any other chapter we've read thus far. Uh, Up until this point, we've been mostly looking at the life 
of Jesus and the works of Jesus, but in this chapter, we actually get to hear the message of Jesus. And what is the first sermon that we have on record of Jesus speaking here? What is the first robust section of scripture where Jesus is preaching and teaching? What is it that he's talking about? You know what he's talking about? The gospel. That's what he has to say. There's so many other things Jesus could have talked about, right? How to restore a divided nation. You know, who to vote for. I wish that would have been his first teaching. Who do I vote for? Right? Like, I got all these issues, Jesus, right? Or, or, or how do I fix this? I'm in debt. How do I get out? You know, all these different things he could have covered. But remember the prior verse. Jesus' first message was connected to what he really knew about man, what man really needed. And so what you have is what's called the good news, the gospel, or the message of God, the message of the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure if you are new to the Christian faith or not, but I want to just say that what Jesus says here in this passage is the fundamental core of the Christian faith. I'm not sure what you, what you think Christianity is. If you think it's uh, maybe this religious um, community of good deeds and, and, and good rule-keeping and modesty and obedience, and certainly those things are involved in following Jesus. But we have this saying here at Solus Church, a desire we have, where we always want to make sure we are keeping Jesus, where? At the center. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, so that the other things don't come in. And the reason why we have to be intentional about keeping Jesus at the center is because it's not our natural position. Other things always flood into that. And maybe for you, that's caused you to question. From people doing that, that's caused you to question what the Christian faith is really about. And I want to say simply today, as, as a simple fundamental statement regarding the Christian faith, understand this. Christianity is not advice. Christianity is fundamentally an announcement. It's not advice for what you need to do and how you need to clean up your life. Christianity brings a message. It's good news. It's an announcement. And here's what's really cool about the announcement in this chapter. Uh, typically, when we study the gospel in Scripture, it's often preached and proclaimed by people about Jesus, by people from the, the perspective of looking on at his life and his work. But isn't it cool here in John 3 that we have Jesus preaching the gospel? Ever thought about that? You know, this is like something that's often forgotten. John 3.16 was a quote by Jesus. This is, you could say it this way, this is how I've kind of thought of it. John 3 is the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, what would Jesus have to say about the gospel? Um, and uh, what you have in this chapter is you have three central themes, okay? Um, and let me give you what those central themes are. We'll break them down afterwards. Uh, the three things that Jesus focuses on, I'm going to give you three theological words that we're going to simplify that make up Jesus' gospel message. And it's these three words. Write these three words down. Jesus speaks first about this thing called regeneration. We'll define them in a moment. He speaks second regarding this thing called salvation. And then he speaks thirdly regarding this thing of illumination. He speaks first about this idea of being made new. Being born again is his words. He then speaks about how that happens through something called salvation, being saved. And then he speaks to what brings that about, and it's coming to the light. It's illumination, coming out of the dark into the light. Now, this is Gospel Jesus 101. But I want to share a, a unique quote about the gospel, and specifically John chapter 3, from the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon. 
Uh, Spurgeon had to say this about this gospel according to Jesus, about John chapter 3. Spurgeon says that regarding what Jesus has to say in this passage, he says this. If we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, if someone goes, I don't know the Christian faith, I'm, I'm on my deathbed, he says we should probably select this chapter that we just read as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And notice this, and what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. What a great perspective. Spurgeon is saying, this is where you want to go to share the gospel with someone else. And be careful, Christian, that you um, don't forget the gospel is always for you. It's always for you. Uh, J.D. Greer, in um, his book, Gaining by Losing, he has this incredible description of what the gospel message is to the Christian. He says that today in the church, what we've done is we've made the gospel, what Jesus has accomplished for sinners, the good work of Jesus, we've made it the diving board that launches us into the pool of Christian activity, of Christian exploration, all right? So we say things like, oh, the God, that's like milk, right? Now I moved on to solid food, how awesome I am now, right? And being obedient and good things. And don't get me wrong, God does develop our depth of, of knowledge of him, our, our, our walking in the spirit, knowing the way the spirit wants to work in through my life. There's depth to walking with Jesus. But we make a grave mistake to think that the gospel is simply the thing that gets me in the door. And now it's up to me to pull myself up by the bootstraps, to use my best discipline, and God saved me, but now i got to get my way to him. No, no, that's, that's the same problem we talked about earlier. That becomes religion. That becomes performance. So what J.D. Greer says is this. This is so genius. He says, the gospel, what Jesus has done, it's not the diving board that launches you into Christian faith, into the pool, but the gospel is the pool of the Christian faith. It is the thing we swim in, we think about, we meditate on, we we let saturate our minds and hearts. And it's a never-ending pursuit, getting to know what Jesus has done. This has kind of been my faith journey. I grew up, I don't know if this is, you can relate to this. I grew up too familiar with the gospel. To where it's like, I've heard that before. It's kind of like news, which is what it is, that you've already heard that someone's reporting to you. Like, oh, I already read that. I read that, all right? I have the app, all right? I get it before anybody else. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on it all, okay? And so I have all my different news sources. I pretty much should be a news anchor. I know so much, okay? And it's like, that, there's this sort of thing, like when you've already heard the news, if someone has to tell it to you, you're like, oh, I've already heard it. I don't need it. And the gospel, which is meant to be good news, can slowly but surely become old news. Heard that. And... Um, that, that's where you start to have the, the rapid loss of spiritual life in a Christian. Like maybe right now you're like, where's my spiritual life been? Here's the question to ask yourself. Where's the gospel in your life? Who are you in the eyes of God right now? You knew who you were in the eyes of God when you first started following Jesus because it was all new and you're like, I'm a new believer and I don't love the world anymore. I'm awesome now. And, I'm a, and that's true. Your heart's changed and that's good. But then you live a little bit. And you're like, oh, I'm still a sinner? Wow. I, I, I still mess up? Like, I was doing pretty good. And then I just, like, the thing was like, just dived. What hope for me now? I thought Christians are people who get saved and now they're good. What hope is there for you? Guess what? The same hope that's always been for you and me. Amen? The hope for you is a God who has good news for you. A God who loves you. Now, lest I just describe it in summary, 
um, let's look at Jesus' gospel in detail. Remember, these three words, regeneration, salvation, illumination. This is the door that gets widened open to Nicodemus, and Jesus is going to preach it. And let's just, I just want to pray this. Holy Spirit, would you just speak this truth over us in a fresh way? Would you, in this time, would you restore to us the joy of your salvation? May we as a community be identified by your gospel. Amen? So let's start here with where Jesus starts. He starts with the need, write that down, the need for regeneration. We saw that in verses 2 through 12. The good news of the gospel starts with a bad situation. It's what makes good news good news, is that it rescues you from bad spaces and a bad situation. Um, it, it's really true that before you can rejoice in the benefits of what Jesus has done, you must first sort of be offended by what you have done to contribute to the sin of the world. You, you've got to be, you got to recognize the situation you're in, that I'm in. So Jesus, as Nicodemus makes this really bold statement, right? Nicodemus makes an unless statement. That's what he starts with. Uh, Nicodemus says to Jesus, no one can do these signs this is a key word, unless he's from God, right? So in other words, I know, I, I have the science figured out. He makes a big unless statement. This can't happen unless this is true. And Jesus goes, okay, I got an unless statement for you as well. Jesus responds, verse 3, and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes and he's got some insight. He can see some things. And Jesus goes, unless you're born again, you can't see anything. And Nicodemus goes, um, huh? Can you explain? I'm kind of confused. Be born, born again. Twice? A second time? I mean, I, I'm, I was born once. Case in point, here I am. Be born a second time. How do I do that? How can a man be born when he is old? That's, I don't even want to picture that. That's just weird. He's going to enter his mom's womb a second time? Like, does he do it as an adult? or a Like, it's weird. What's going on here, right? Nicodemus is like trying to figure it out. Be born twice. Be born again? Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born, at verse 5, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's continuing to reiterate his point. There's a lot of debate about what Jesus means here about water and the Spirit. Uh, could the water symbolize baptism? And unless you're born of water and you're baptized, you can't see the kingdom of God. And I would say, and we would say, no. Okay? Baptism is not a prerequisite to entering paradise with Jesus. It is a call and a command that follows your faith in Jesus. Uh, but we see that with the thief on the cross. Best example there. It's kind of settled there. Uh, he says, I want to I be with you, Jesus. And he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, we've got to get you baptized. You're on this cross. How do we get you? No, he didn't do any of that. And we make sure that this is a point we do. When anybody comes to the water's edge to, give their, to be baptized, I've had countless times where people have said, you know, hey, why are you here? Why has God led you to the water's edge? And you say, well, I just want my sins washed away. I just want, I just want to go in the water. And we have often found ourselves saying, well, this is not going to do that. The blood of Jesus will wash your sins away. But baptism, no, so, so water. So what does he mean by water in the spirit? Uh, some say it could, it could point to Ezekiel, which talks about being sprinkled with clean water, a picture of cleansing, could be. Um, I, in the context of it, I'm going to take the position, it's likely, I'm not going to say absolutely, but it's likely that he's speaking of two kinds of birth. Flesh, he goes on to say, 
and spirit, right? Doesn't he go on to say that? That which is, verse 6, is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Uh, flesh birth involves water. Okay? Breaking, right? Okay. That is literally how flesh birth happens, all right, in a lot of different ways. I'm not going to get into that because I've experienced it a couple times, um, but I, st- I, I was just an onlooker, mostly, all right? So Nicodemus in his mind, he's going, i got to be born again, but I, how do I, like, do I go in the womb? Is it water? Like, Jesus goes, no, no. Uh, to see the kingdom of God, you need more. Here's what he's telling him. You need more than just being physically alive right now. In your present state, you are not suited to enter the kingdom of God. In your present condition, you're not suited to enter nor see the kingdom of God. This is interesting. In your present state, what you need is a spiritual rebirth. You need to be born of the Spirit. And I love how Jesus goes on to say, as Nicodemus is trying to figure it out, He says in verse 7, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again in this way, spiritually reborn. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. I think today is set to be a bit of a windy day. And he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says, listen, you're trying to figure it out, but here's the thing. What you need to understand is it's, it's like the wind. You don't see it, but you see the effects of it. So he's trying to figure out, oh, this spiritual birthing, how does it happen? He goes, it's like the wind. So is everyone born of the Spirit. You, you might not be able to figure it out, but you see the effects of it. Now, this is where we are getting into what is that theological word, regeneration. This gets some meat to it over uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament. The Bible will use this word in Titus chapter 3 and a couple different places to describe this supernatural event that takes place in the life of someone in whom God has imparted new spiritual life to them. New spiritual life. Um, Again, that word regeneration. I love Wayne Grudem's definition of regeneration. Uh, Wayne Grudem says that regeneration, being born again, it's the secret act of God, it's a bit mysterious, to impart new spiritual life to his children. New spiritual life to his children. Now, there's a lot of debate in theology and conversation, and let's keep this out of our community groups, okay, and, and not talk about, well, when does it happen? You know, like, how about this? Has it happened to you? That's a good question, right? And where are you bringing it about? But there's a lot of, there's this thing called the, or, I don't, hate to bore you. Why am I? I don't know. But the Ordo Salutis, the Ordo Salutis is the order of salvation. There's a lot of conversation about when does this happen? Does this happen before I trust in Jesus? Is this the thing that leads me to trust in Jesus? Now, we don't know exactly. I mean, there's different opinions about this. Here's the point that Jesus is making. It's necessary. It's necessary. It's necessary for every single human being. You must, you hear me, you must be born again. In order to what? What do I need to be regenerated for? He says to see and to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I like that these two, two words are used, see and enter. Because uh, we understand the kingdom of God to be both of those things. The kingdom of God is a place that some, listen, that some will enter. In fact, according to scripture, few will enter. And it's a place that many will not. 
the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, we need to understand this according to, to our good theology of studying the life of Jesus, the kingdom of God is something that can also be seen right now, right? Uh, the kingdom of God, it's been described in scripture, it's, it's something that is already, but not yet. So when Jesus came to earth, what did he come announcing? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was John the Baptist's message as well. The kingdom of God is here. Why? The king is here. But we know in the beginning of time that there was no disconnect between the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of God. Perfect unity, no sin, unity with God, unity with each other. And then when sin came into the picture, that relationship was fractured, it was severed to where we now don't have that access to the kingdom of God because in our present state, we are in sin. Jesus came announcing the kingdom. He brought that kingdom. He inaugurated that kingdom kingdom. So I believe this now that as a Christian, there's things that I can see about the kingdom that I couldn't see before. Like I see the kingdom at work. I'm seeing it in our church. I'm seeing it in people's lives. You ever seen the kingdom of God? Like God's given you eyes to see him at work. Well, Jesus is saying to see it and then one day to actually enter it, eternal life, to spend an eternity with God, you must first be born again. That's what he's saying here. Regeneration, the need for it. Now, this wasn't just confusing and perplexing to Nicodemus. This was likely offensive. You mean me, the teacher of Israel, a Jew, I don't have what it takes in and of myself to stand before God and enter the kingdom of God? And this was the popular idea at that time that um, as a Jew, you were born into the kingdom of God. Right? I'm a Jew. I'm born in. Right? Of course I'm going to see and enter the kingdom of God. I'm one of his chosen people. And there's traces of that still today, right? I was, I was born into a Christian family, right? I've been, I'm an American. God bless America. Doesn't God favor American politics and Americans? TV tells me he does, so it must be true. And social media, right? I was, so there's these ideas that we have that say that it's kind of like in some way, whatever your reason is, there's this great lie of the enemy that traces back all the way here to Nicodemus that says it's your birthright to be accepted by God. It's your birthright to go to heaven. It's your birthright to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, who's probably the, I shouldn't say probably, he is the authority on heaven, he says no. It's your birthright to be separated from God for all of eternity. What? You must be born again. Why? Well, because the state that you have been born into is a sinful state. You've been conceived. David prays, I was conceived in sin. My very nature, my existence, I have sinned against the holy God. If there was any birthright to go to heaven, I've lost it. He's, he's, he's speaking these things to Nicodemus. There is a, listen, for you to go to heaven, listen, for you to see the kingdom of God, for me to see the kingdom of God, I need this secret act of God. I need this thing that happens that imparts spiritual life to me. You need God to, to regenerate you, for you to be born again. I know there's a lot of mystery that this goes into because it's like, well, when did it happen, right? Has anybody ever asked you that? Like, what's your spiritual birthday, Right? Like, where's the card that you filled out? And for some of us, I don't know about you, I have like six of them because I'm not sure exactly when. So I think, like, I, I envy you if you're able to say, like, 
If it's very linear for you, like this is when I was not walking with Jesus, this is when my heart was made completely new and I started following after Jesus. Um, actually, that, that's a, I know a couple of you, that's your testimony. That's an awesome thing. Um, for people who have a, a troubled religious past like me, there's sequences and there's moments. But here's what I, here's what I, want, to ask your, I want you to ask yourself. Think of the wind thing. For you, the concern shouldn't be the date. The concern should be the, the evidence. Like, it's evident to me that each of you had a physical birthday. All right. Why? Because there's physical life. And those in the medical field would say that there's certain signs of life. And I would say, too, that there are signs of spiritual life. That, and by the way... Um, be careful if you've been raised in the church because you could give off signs of spiritual life when you just know the script. You must be born again. You must be regenerated. It's a work of the Spirit. How do I experience this work of the Spirit? That's what, uh, in a sense, that's what Nicodemus is trying to get at. How do I will my birth? That's what Nicodemus is asking. Which the answer to that is you don't, right? Nobody's here because they were determined to, you know? I got myself here into this earth. No, someone else had a lot to do with it, right? A couple people, right? And here you are. You exist, your, spirit, your birth was the will of someone else. And that's, in a sense, what we need spiritually. I'm not getting into election, non-election. What I'm getting into, the fact is this. None of us could give ourselves this spiritual life. We need God to do it. And ready? So here's the good news. God has done it. Here's one option. Uh, one option is you do it, right? You make your way to God. You climb high enough. You be good enough. You try hard enough. You go to church enough. But, but Jesus tells us, look back at John 3. Jesus tells us, he says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven. <laughs> There's not going to be anybody who's going to get across the finish line of heaven like someone who just finished a marathon in their own strength. Like, whoo, I did it triathlon of life. Here I am. Hey, Lord, I made it. I'm glad. Oh, I can come in now? Good. I was good enough? No, no, no. We fall at the start of that race. No one has ascended to heaven. There's no ladder we can construct in and of ourselves to get to God. In fact, anytime you see that in the Bible, you see God smacking that down. No, no, no. Stop trying to work your way to me. But, but what if there was another way? Knowing that we cannot ascend to God to will our own spiritual new life, um, wouldn't it be really good news if God descended to us? It would, right? If God came after me, knowing I could never get to him, understand this is what God did through Jesus. No man has ascended to the heavens. No, look at the next verse. Jesus says this, though. But he, verse 13, who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This great paradox. Jesus has come. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus is the visual, bodily expression of the mission of God to rescue sinners like you and me. Jesus came into the world. I love that. He was in heaven. He descended. Imagine the humility. Philippians 2 talks about that. For God to come into this world. For, for Jesus to move into the neighborhood. And that's what Jesus did to rescue us. This is the, the good news of the gospel, that God sent his son to do what we could never do for ourselves. Now, in these next verses, you have uh, what is, I think, the greatest visual explanation of the gospel in all the Bible. 
Now, a lot of times what we do is we skip to verse 16, where now I would expound that God so loved you and he sent his son. And that's a great verse. I really like that verse. It's a big one. All right. But what's one of the most overlooked verses is the prior two verses. Verses 14 through 15 actually tell us what Jesus did to rescue you and to rescue me. And he tells us, Jesus tells us, according to an Old Testament picture. Notice what he says. As Moses lifted up the Son of Man, sorry, as Moses lifted up, rather, the serpent, that's correct English, in the wilderness, even so, notice this, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not uh, perish, but have eternal life. Life. Now, I forgot to tell you my, my second point a long time ago, but we've been talking about the hope of salvation. Welcome to Solus, all right? This is what we're talking about. You have the need for regeneration, which finds its hope in God sending his son to save us, the hope of salvation. And as Jesus is articulating how he has come to save us, he pulls from an Old Testament story. The people of Israel, they are wandering in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21. And they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They are hungry. They are thirsty. Listen, not without God's provision. Okay? God has been providing for them, but it's not enough. That's usually where our complaining and grumbling and sin comes into play, right? Not that I don't have what I need, but I don't have what I want. And so, you know, God's people were way different back then, right? <laughs> Look at them, church people back then complaining. All right, here they are wandering through the wilderness, and they begin to grumble against the Lord. In a sense, they begin to curse God. They say, man, what, forget what God's done for us. I'm sick of this stuff he's been providing. I want to go back to Egypt, is what they said. You have miraculously parted the Red Sea. You have saved us. You have, you have displayed wonders and signs to rescue us. Isn't this crazy? And yet still I want to go back to the world. And so there's consequence for their sin. There are serpents that are sent by a just, holy, and righteous God that, infl- uh, that afflict and inflict these Israelites. And the Bible says many of them die. Grumbling will kill you, by the way, okay? And here they are dying off from these bites of these fiery serpents in the wilderness. I mean, oh, my goodness, like snakes on a plane or whatever. This is crazy. I mean, this is wild. And as people are dying... Moses pleads to the Lord, and he says, God, is there a way? Is there another way? Could you, could you somehow rescue us? So, so God says, yeah. This is always God, by the way. You ask him for mercy, he shows you mercy. It's amazing. Even when you've sinned against him. And God tells Moses, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a serpent, and I want you to wrap it around a bronze pole. And, and that brass, it symbolizes all throughout Scripture judgment. And that serpent, it symbolizes temptation and sin. And, and so, Moses, what you're going to do is, hello. Okay. It's wood, but there's a brass uh, end to it, okay? This is Judah's pet snake. Anyway, God says, Moses, what I want you to do is, I want you to, this is what God tells Moses to do, I want you to lift up that serpent on that pole. And whoever, he says this, whoever looks at it, will be saved, will be healed. And so that's actually what happens. Let me show you this. It's, it's numbers. I told you, Numbers 21, it says, Then Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, I know this is peculiar, but follow me, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. 
Nicodemus knows this story. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, whoever looks, look at this, whoever looks at the Son, even so the Son of Man would be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. What a great picture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe on him, whosoever would look to him, would not die in their sin, but they would be given everlasting life. I want you to know this. All you need to do today to be right with God is look. Just look at Jesus. What a gift. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't say, fix yourself, get your act together? He says, look at my son Jesus. And what a picture, as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, that is sin being judged, just like that brass pole represented. And as you look at the Son, he says you'll be saved. This is the greatest offer, salvation through trusting in Jesus, not through your own works. There's, there's really, at the end of the day, there's two kinds of people trying to get to heaven, people who are looking to themselves and people who are looking to Jesus. Who are you looking to today? Have you looked to Jesus on the cross this, I think, is also really helpful because I grew up hearing you've got to believe in Jesus. But what does that mean, right? Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. Okay, I believe in him. I believe in him. I believe in, in uh, conservative politics. I believe in clean energy. I don't know, right? You can believe in a lot of things, but how helpful is Jesus? He goes, this is what it actually means to believe in me. It doesn't just mean that you ascend to certain intellectual truths. This is why it's so important for those of us who have been raised in the church, you can know the gospel and not trust in Jesus. You can know, you can preach it better than anyone. Articulate it. You probably already know this Moses serpent thing. You've done it on a missions trip when you were 12. But have you looked to Jesus? A.W. Tozer says this, that this is the true definition of faith. I love this. A.W. Tozer says that faith is the gaze of a soul upon the saving God. That's faith. Have, have you gazed with your soul upon Jesus? And on Jesus, you saw the sinless, spotless lamb who became sin for you so that you can become the righteousness of God in him. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you thrown out your religion? Have you thrown out trying to be good enough to God? And have you received the free gift of God loving you oh so much? For God so loved, let's break this down, for God, that's the greatest being, so loved, that's the greatest motive, the world, think about that, the world, that's the greatest reach that he gave, the greatest display of love, his one and only son, that's the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest invitation, would believe in him, the greatest response, would not perish, the greatest rescue, but have everlasting life, the greatest hope. It's a great place for an applause and an amen because we love the Lord. Amen. And this is why we need to saturate over these things because I'm afraid that these things have just been kind of old news that we go, yeah. Yeah, that's, right. that's great. That's really great. That's great. No. This is, this is eternity, right? Wow, eternity with God. Let that, let that just fall so deep in your soul that you don't got to worry about today anymore. You have eternity ahead of you. Eternity with God. Don't you think we might share the gospel a little bit more if we actually believe that? If this really worked its way into our heart? 
this great salvation, the gaze of the soul, Isaiah says, look to me and be saved. That's it. Look to Jesus. Now, we'll, we'll close. I'll invite the band to come out as we close here. I want to close with this last thought here. And it's the final thing, which is a call to illumination. Write that last thing down. This call to illumination. Jesus, he, he gives this bold uh, declaration. He, he lets everyone know that if you look to him, you can be saved. You'll receive new life from above. He goes on to give this glorious summation of that in John 3.16. From there, he gives some important clarifications. He, he wants to clarify. Jesus says this, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Just, just hear this. But that the world through him might be saved. This is so important. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. This is huge. A lot of people understand the gospel to be a message of condemnation. Like, I have to choose Jesus or go to hell? And, and Jesus is, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus has come to send you to hell. The gospel is that Jesus comes because you were going to hell. He who does not believe is condemned already for rejecting. Jesus didn't come to condemn. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There is condemnation. There is. But not for those who have trusted in Jesus. Not for those who have looked to Jesus, the Savior. Now, now, why would someone with an offer like this, right now, under, even under the sound of my voice, why would someone not accept this gift? Why would someone not look to Jesus on the cross to cleanse them of their sin? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, this is the condemnation, verse 19, that the light has come into the world, and here's the reason, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they've been done in God. This, this is interesting. Jesus creates um, two categories of people. Over here, he creates people who have done evil. One or two of us, right? Who have messed up, who have fallen short. And, and the problem with evil is it draws us. When we do it, it draws us to the darkness. This has always been the condition of man since the very beginning. We sin against God and then we hide from God. I end up in the darkness. Here's the other option. It's someone who's in the light and has nothing to hide because they do the truth. Now, um, I think what Jesus is doing here, first and foremost, is he's pointing something out in Nicodemus' life. Because Nicodemus has come to Jesus when? In the light? No, at night. You've come as you've always lived, Nicodemus, hiding in the dark, afraid of, of who, you were really, who you really are if it was ever exposed in the light. And then co contrast that with Jesus. Jesus is the light. He has nothing to hide. Talk to me in the nighttime, the daytime, whatever time it is, I'm going to be Jesus. But we find ourselves in the same boat as Nicodemus. And let's be honest. What keeps me from trusting in what Jesus has done. What's keeping you even right now from, from putting your complete faith and trust in the work of the cross? It's fear. Fear that who you really are won't be accepted by God. And so you have to hide in the darkness. You have to put off a version of yourself that you aren't. You're enslaved to that performance. And your biggest fear is being exposed. 
But what if I told you that God knows who you really are? What if I told you that when Jesus went to the cross, he knew that thing that you're hiding? What if I told you that Jesus really is enough? That all you've got to do is stop hiding from him. What if I told you that freedom comes not from preserving yourself, but by, Jesus says, letting go of your life and trusting in a Savior, listen, who does more for you than your religion ever could, satisfies you more than anything in this world ever could, saves you in a way that nothing else could. You know what that would be? Good news. And I have good news for you today. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus has gone to the cross. God really does love you. Loves you. Loves you as you are. Sees you as you are. And he invites you to come to his life. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.